Good morning, Renaissance Church. Welcome, welcome. If everyone can um, abruptly stop your conversation. And, no, I'm just kidding. But um, it's so nice to hear everyone hanging out, having fun. Um, welcome to Ren. Um, it's really nice to be here with you guys this Sunday morning. Worship was just a powerful thing to be a part of this morning. I, what, one of the things I love about Sunday mornings and gathering together is that it is an opportunity for us to step into the eternal realities of who God is and what he's done for us. And the words that we sing in worship do so much to renew our minds and remind us of who God is and who we are in him and the hope and the joy that we have in him. And it, life can be crazy outside of this. The reality of all the things that we're dealing with, I know that you guys have as much that you're carrying or working through as me or any of the rest of us, but to come here and remember who is on the throne and who is won, who has won the victory for us, it is a powerful reality to step into and be washed in on a Sunday morning. Thank you for that, amen, because God is so good and the gospel is so powerful and the joy and the peace and the freedom that we have, that we're invited into, that we don't deserve it all. Wow, that is better than any. There's a lyric that said something about how, uh, I don't know, like God is better than any, anything. I don't know, making it up. New worship lyric, someone else can have it. But it's true. It's really true. There's so many other things we could be doing, but you're here. Thank you for being with us this Sunday morning. It's so nice to see you. If you're new to Renaissance, welcome. Um, so we gather here every other Sunday as a whole church community. And on the other Sundays, we actually gather across the state in five neighborhood gatherings. Um, there's College Hill, Cranston, East Bay, West Bay, and the South Side. So next Sunday, there will be a small group meeting here, a neighborhood gathering, but there are others that may be in a geographical location closer to you. And um, if you are new, you can come to the welcome table after the service and find out more information about that or anything else you might have questions about. I only have five minutes to do announcements and I've already used two and a half minutes. <laughs> and there's like, I, what I wanted to say today is that there are, so basically there's five things that I get to remind our church family about. One of them is the neighborhood gatherings. Let me try to get this in two and a half minutes, okay? There's five things. There's the neighborhood gatherings. There's the monthly meal that we do for our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness. There is the Trinity Square block party that's coming up, um, I think, in a couple of weeks. There's tithes and offering. And then there's our fifth Sunday community meal, okay? So five things. I'm going to talk about them in two minutes. I'm not going to give you all the details because you can find those on your own, and I'm going to ask the point person to stand up. But what I want to say is just like coming here to be in worship, to hear the word, to, to be with each other on a Sunday morning. Each of these things are a way that we can step into the kingdom reality of the freedom and the joy and the, and the communion with God that we are called to experience, right? So the neighborhood gatherings is an opportunity to do that in a small way. We share a meal with each other. Guys, one of the things that a lot of these have in common is this kingdom reality that, listen, the redemption story of the Bible, it culminates in like the wedding feast, right? Where we are invited into this communion with God. It's a party. 
right? Like the end of Revelation talks about every tear will be wiped away. I can't imagine that. I cry all the time. I don't know if you guys have ever seen me do announcements. I cry when I do announcements, but he wipes away every tear. You know, there will be no more pain. But that's like the culmination of the redemption story is that celebration and we're called into that. And each of these things are an opportunity to practice that by faith, even if we're not feeling it, right? So to gather in the neighborhood gathering, sometimes they're not perfect. We're still figuring it out. We've only done it a few times. It can be a little, you know, maybe it's awkward or maybe there's like someone offends you or something, but it's still an opportunity to come and rejoice and a fellowship to be loved on and to love, right? So those are the neighborhood gatherings every other Sunday. There's the meals for for the homeless. Guys, this is powerful. There's a story in Matthew where Jesus calls, or Jesus tells this parable about how there was a king who told his servant to go invite the wedding guests. He prepared a wedding feast for his son. Oh, five minutes, guys. I'll be fast. Can I have like 30 more seconds? Okay. He invites, he, the king, the, Jesus tells this parable how he invites wedding guests, invites guests to a feast he prepared for his son. Sound familiar? Anyhow, the guests don't come, so he tells his servants, go into the highways and byways, invite anyone you can to this feast. And guys, like, we get to invite those who maybe we don't always see or whatever your, uh, your thoughts or opinion, we don't know um, why someone is in a season they're in, but you can come and volunteer to help with this ministry, and you can bring that moment of hope joy, breakthrough for someone you don't know what you get to be a part of. So if you want more information about that meal, you would contact Stacy. Are you up here, Stacy? Stacy Kemp. If you want to be a part of that, just ask anybody. Who's Stacy? Until you find her, okay? So that's, that's the home. Trinity Square Block Party. This is an annual thing that we get to be a part of. It's huge. It's in the neighborhood. One of the things we're asked to do is the kids' fun zone. And I just, if you have not yet had a chance to work with the kids, I just want to remind you, another kingdom reality, Jesus says, let the children come to me for such is the kingdom of heaven. Guys, so if you want another opportunity to experience that kingdom reality of who God is and the joy and the peace and bring that to others and experience it yourself, you can volunteer to be involved in the Trinity Square Block Party and love on our neighbors in this community. So if you want more information, you want to contact Michaela. Can you raise your hand? She's here. Okay, Michaela. Tithes and offerings. Guys, this is not an event, but it's something we get to do in particular. It's a way that we worship God, right? He gives seed to the sower, bread to the eater, and he makes our seed multiply and abound. So, you know, sometimes there's busy seasons. I had a busy season where I was not really managing our finances well, and I had to, like, back pay the Lord my tithes and offerings. And I was like, Lord, please, I'm sorry this isn't the first fruits, but here it is. I repent. And I got back on the train because he deserves our everything. But guys, like, there are this is, he is, you cannot give God, right? We don't talk a lot about finances, but honestly, when you give seed, he gives us finances. Some is bread for eating, some is seed for sowing, right? One of the ways you sow is into your local church community. And these are the different ways that you can give, and he always multiplies your seed. Okay, last thing, we have a community meal, the fifth Sunday. I was supposed to ask Scott for the details. I forgot but Scott's gonna preach right now, so I'm gonna pray for him, and maybe he'll give us a little bit of the details of the Fifth Sunday community meal, all right? Let's pray. I'm gonna pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are for us and the freedom that we have in you, the joy that we have in you, the love and the light that you've shed abroad on our heart. For those that are here that haven't experienced that yet or 
are so heavily burdened with the cares of this world or the cares of their life, family, friends, finances, whatever's going on. God, I pray that this morning would be the morning where you break through in their lives and bring your truth, your gospel reality to their life of who you are for them. God, let breakthrough happen this morning. Let us leave totally transformed by the hearing of the word and the receiving of the word. God, we just bless Scott. Uh, I just pray that he would walk in freedom, authority to preach what you have given him to share with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Whoa. <laughs> okay. Thank you for preaching the announcements. There was a powerful anointing on that. I'm not sure about the community gathering uh, next week. We're going to do it. It's going to be at 10 o'clock. It might be here. It might be at the Varton Gregorian Elementary School. We'll figure it out. Just we'll send an email out this week. Okay. Um, but wow. Who said women can't preach or shouldn't preach? That was like, that was a message right there. Uh, thank you for, for sharing all that, sharing your heart. Amen. Um, so if you're brand new with us, we are going through the long, very long New Testament book of Acts. And we're, we're kind of getting near the end. We're today going to look at chapters 21 and 22. And so if you want to turn there or turn in your flip to your... Bible app or something like that if you want to follow along. But we'll put up the scriptures probably, if you guys can follow me, uh, up on the screen. But uh, today we're going to, we usually just deal with one chapter at a time, but these two chapters just totally go together. Uh, so we just really have to go through it. So I'm not going to be reading every single verse. It's just too long, but we'll read certain portions and, and parts of it. Um, so yeah, the first thing, this is kind of a strange message. I, I, I'm usually like kind of stick closely with uh, the text, you know, the, the, and just kind of draw out the truth from it. But I, I do kind of have a, I want to open up with the first part of my message with a bit of a pastoral encouragement. It was more inspired from one verse in the text. I'll read the verse. It's um, actually a few verses, seven to nine, Acts 21, seven to nine says this, when we finished, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. Now, if you go back to uh, chapter six and chapter eight, you can learn more about Philip uh, he was one of the, you might remember the, the issue with feeding the widows and the tensions and the complexities of that. And, um, the, you know, the apostles said, look, we need to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Uh, choose seven men amongst you. And they, so they chose seven, kind of like deacons, really, uh, to handle the distribution of food to the widows. And Philip was one of them, powerful man, full of wisdom, full of grace. He was one of the seven and then you kind of read more about his exploits in chapter 8. But anyways, they, they stayed with Philip. Um, and Philip had four unmarried daughters 
who prophesied. And that's the verse I want to springboard out of for a moment. Now, if you've been around church circles for a while, you've noticed that churches have very different opinions regarding the role of women in church life. Um, on one end, churches encourage women to teach and preach and lead and even to be lead pastors. On the other end, churches uh, don't believe women should be pastors or elders or to teach and preach in the congregation. Apparently, we do believe in women preaching because we just, it just happened a few minutes ago. But we won't talk about the more extreme churches that oppress women and that whole thing. But within the realm of good and healthy churches, gospel churches, there are differing views. Many of my close pastor friends in the city uh, differ in matters regarding a woman's role in the local church. So <laughs> the verses we read are one of many verses that I believe support the idea of women preaching. I think it would be a stretch to assume that they only prophesy to other women. Um, in fact, the writer of Acts says in the next verse that they stayed with Philip for many days. So I kind of imagine that, you know, this is Luke, this is Paul, this is other disciples who were traveling, these, this kind of band of missionaries that were hanging out with Philip and his four, uh, four daughters and probably the wife and other people that were around. And they probably had prayer meetings and times of just getting into the word together. And I kind of imagine the daughters prophesying at times. Like we were in a prayer meeting last night that was just a, a, really a time of prayer, maybe, I don't know, an hour and a half or so of just seeking the Lord with about a dozen or so people. And during the course of that prayer meeting, several words were given by different people, prophecies. Prophecy is just to speak a word uh, that, that is on your heart that you feel like God is, God is saying. I also go back to the time when the church was born 2,000 years ago, and it's recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 2, right? The Holy Spirit came upon 120 men and women, and what happened? They all started to preach and proclaim the wonderful works of God publicly uh, to all the people who were coming in from all over the world. So there's that. But now, okay, stay with me. There are other verses that say that women should not teach or have authority over a man. The two descriptions of elders in the Bible do not include women at all. The qualification of an elder is that you must not only be a man, but a father. So there's that. <laughs> so what you get is a sort of theological ping pong game. The arguments on both sides are compelling. Some things in scripture are very clear. Some things are not perfectly clear. And so I call these not-so-clear things, secondary issues. And some other, I'll just list for the fun of it, some other secondary issue questions that aren't perfectly clear in the Bible include, how should a church be governed? 
Should churches serve alcohol, you know, like at the church picnic or communion? Who qualifies for church membership? Who can take part, who can partake of communion? Is it always wrong for couples to live together? What is the chronology of end time events? Is it a sin to smoke? What about remarriage after divorce? Is it okay to divorce? When is it okay to divorce? Is abortion ever okay? Should a church oppose or support the legal right for gays to marry? Should a transgender person be included in church membership? Should a church encourage voting for a particular party? If so, which party? Should pastors be paid? Is tithing a biblical command? Hymns, no hymns, or a mix? What about drums and electric guitar? Some people demonize the electric guitar. Those people are just deluded. They don't realize that God invented the electric guitar. That, but that's just my opinion, okay? Separate, separate the kids' programming or include kids in the service. At what point should a person be put out of the fellowship? Should everyone speak in tongues? Is it God's will for everyone to speak in tongues? What about secular music in movies? What is considered inappropriate dress for a church gathering? Altar calls or no altar calls? Homeschooling or public schooling? Infant baptism or immersion? Expository preaching or topical? This is just, I'm just scratching the surface right now. There are so many different secondary issues that churches, many of these things, many of these things we don't really need to figure out, but many of these things, churches actually have to have a stance, right? I mean, what we must do as church elders is decide the best we can how to handle each matter. And we just can't be ambiguous about it. You know, it would be, it wouldn't, wouldn't cut it if, if, Somebody came and said, well, what's the church's, um, you know, belief on this? And I was just, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's a secondary issue and nobody really knows. It's not perfectly clear in scripture. Like we actually have to land somewhere, right? On many of these things. Uh, for example, can women be elders? Can they teach? It's not like, well, I don't know. Well, do they or don't they? You know, it's like it's, you can't just live in the, in the gray. We actually have to make a decision about these things. At Wren, by the way, if you're wondering, in this matter about uh, you know, women, do we allow them to preach and teach and lead and all that? We do. Uh, we do allow women to teach and to preach and to lead. We don't have women elders at Wren. Um, however, we do include women on our kind of wider council. So we have like there's the elders and then the elders meet with uh, about a, an additional 10 people. And so we have that about half of the council is, is women, maybe more. So I've read books and articles through the years um, on this topic. I've listened to messages. I've talked with my pastor friends at length and people within the church really for 34 years. Uh, I've thought about this particular topic. And I've said many times that we may be 
wrong on our particular stance. We're kind of a middle of the road with regarding women. You know, we don't have women elders. They're part of the council. They can preach and teach. We're, we're kind of in the, in, the, in the middle there. And I don't know, I'll find out one day. I'll stand before Jesus and we'll hear, hear what he has to say. I always say, kind of jokingly, I can't imagine Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant, but how could you let the women preach? I mean, I'm just saying, I can't picture him saying that. <laughs> I think, um, again, I think, you know, it's, it's okay to have strong opinions about things, but what I want to encourage for all of us is to hold things in tension. It's okay to have an opinion, a strong opinion about a secondary issue, but strive to not be dogmatic about it and arrogant about it. Because I think intellectual honesty is, it's really, it, it should be the norm amongst Christians. And if we're not, even as pastors, like we, you know, we're supposed to know everything, right? Know everything for sure, because we're, I don't know, we're the authorities. Like we, we don't. If we're honest, we, we don't really know everything for sure. And so I think intellectual honesty would be like, well, you know, I've thought about this for several decades. This is what I believe. I could, I could be missing it. I could be missing part of it. And I think that that's honestly, that's humility. And I think that's, that's really important for a church community. I think it's part of what has kept us together as a very diverse uh, community with all different opinions. Now, the, even the short list that I gave, probably different people in the room had, you know, you're, you probably had an opinion for every single one of the things I mentioned, right? Right? Can I get an amen? amen. Don't tell oh, I don't know, I don't care. No, we all have opinions, okay? We're all, that's, we're humans. We have opinions. And there's different opinions on some of these matters in this community. But part of what makes this church work is that there's a humility, there's a respect, there's an intellectual honesty. Yeah, we have a firm opinion about something, but we hold it loosely and we hold it in tension. And by the way, because this, again, this is the short list, you will never find a church that agrees with you 100% on every secondary issue. It's just not going to happen. So you don't want to be the kind of person that goes to a church for a little while, and then, oh, you know, they don't agree with me on this secondary issue. I'm leaving. You'll be the kind of person that just bounces from church to church to church to church. At the end of the day, we have to, we have to put some of those things aside. In fact, I think it's healthy for churches to have some different opinions about things because it's, there's like a robust dialogue that can happen as long as we don't kill each other, right? <laughs> you know, as long as we're not like fighting and getting nasty about it. If there's a, a peacefulness and you, you actually learn. And so I, I love that. I've, I've had many people challenge me through the years. I've had pastor friends challenge me. I've changed my opinion about certain secondary issues or adjusted it slightly through the years. So even after, you know, 20 years of pastoring ran, you know, 34 years of walking with Jesus, I'm still open. I'm still open. I don't have it all figured out. These things are very um, challenging to figure out. All right, let's uh, dig a little deeper into this. So I want to read this verse just to kick us off. Acts 21, verse 4. Acts 21, verse 4 says this. Um, Having sought out the disciples, 
we stayed there for seven days. And through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So the situation here was the disciples really, really cared about Paul. He was kind of like a father to them. Uh, They knew that the dangers were serious in Jerusalem, uh, awaiting Paul. And the thought of watching their spiritual dad maybe arrested or flogged or maybe even killed was, was really hard for them to bear, right? I mean, just think of this as like a family. Um, they pleaded with Paul to change his mind about going to Jerusalem. And I don't think they were just being fearful. They, I mean, these dangers were real, as we'll see as the story unfolds. It's interesting that the verse says, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go. <laughs> what does that mean exactly? Did it mean that God the Spirit was telling Paul not to go? Or just that the deep love in the spirit they had for Paul was moving them to urge Paul not to go. Even with interpretation sometimes, right? There's, if we're intellectually honest, we, I'm not, you know, there's, there's different ways of looking at these different things. Um, I would vote for the latter there. And then this leads to this next portion, the Agabus word, uh, verses 10 to 12. While This is connected. While we were staying for many days, again, in the house of Philip with his daughters, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, this is so dramatic, right? Coming to us, this prophet comes, shows up at the house and asks Paul to take off his belt, right? And he takes Paul's belt and binds his own hands and his own feet and says, this is so dramatic, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, it says, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And I imagine some of the disciples who were trying to warn Paul earlier, right? Verse four, were whispering to Paul, hey, you know, I think God is trying to tell you something. Don't go to Jerusalem. And this message was really packaged here as a direct word from God. And apparently people started weeping. Can you picture the scene? They're just like weeping and crying and And it's just a mess. The kids are crying now because mom is crying and the daughters are crying of Philip and Philip's starting to cry. It's just like a whole, it's a whole scene and they're all crying over Paul because, you know, Paul's in danger and they're pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem. Now let's let's check out Paul's uh, strange response. Verses 13 and 14. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. (laughs) <laughs> it almost sounds a little insensitive, right? <laughs> but he's like, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. In other words, we stopped trying to get him to not go to Jerusalem and said, let the will of the Lord be done. That'll really stretch your theology right there. So Paul sees the whole situation entirely 
different from these concerned believers, right? Paul received the message. He did receive the message from Abagus uh, as from God, really. Um, But his application of the message was not to stay back because of the danger. Note that the word from Agabus predicted what would happen to Paul, but it didn't tell Paul not to go, right? That was kind of an application being made. God already spoke to Paul about the dangers he'd face in every single city he went to, and he was ready to suffer and die if necessary. So the message from the prophet really was just a confirmation to Paul, like, yep, good, yeah, the Lord, this is a good reminder. The Lord told me I might uh, be in prison, I might be beaten, I might die. Um, the Lord has already prepared me for these things. And so the, the message of the prophet was a like an encouragement or a reminder to Paul. That's how Paul took it. So it's important when the Lord gives a word, this is for us, it's important when the Lord gives us a word not to uh, mishandle the application of that word through the lens of our desire to stay safe or to be comfortable or to hold on to things that we love or just for life to go the way we want it to go. It's very easy to get a word from God and and sort of interpret that word or apply it to the things that we want out of life. Whoa, right? Following Jesus is denying ourselves and carrying our cross. And um, a man on a cross has no rights. You know, we, we leave behind everything. I think of that verse, we've been bought with a price the precious blood of Christ, right? We've been bought with a price and we're no longer our own. Our time, our energy, our dreams, our finances, our talents, our everything, all of our whims and wishes and desires and all of it is in the hands of God. And we say, like we sang this morning, one of the songs was like, just do whatever you want to do. You know, God, it's, this is all yours. It's everything I am, all my days are in your hands. That's what it means to be a Christian. So Paul talks a lot in his letters about suffering. He viewed it as not only tolerable, but actually he welcomed it. He says that it was granted to him not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for his name's sake. He said his burning passion in Philippians 3 was to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. I'll just give you a few verses, 2 Corinthians 12. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 1, uh, verses 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Romans 8, he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction is doing something good. I added that. Preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
So Paul viewed suffering as an opportunity to glorify God. Afflictions were viewed as tools to shape character. Trials brought eternity closer. They brought Jesus closer. They caused him to to depend on Christ more. Troubles were occasions for deep communion with Christ. And it often opened doors that were previously shut. So this way of viewing suffering helped Paul to sustain. And certainly it would help us. It's very easy to, uh, you know, when things don't go our way, to get discouraged, right? To get sad, you know, just to get downcast. Ah, this isn't what I expected. And we're just kind of kicking the dirt. And, you know, we just, we like things to go our way, right? But often life does not go our way. We, we, We like God to just dole out blessing after blessing after blessing, right? But sometimes life hits us in the face. The hard things happen. We're not exempt from that because we're Christians. You know, oh, all the sufferings and the bad things, those are for people that don't serve Jesus. No, 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 no. It rains on the just and the unjust. And there is uh, an expectation that we should have. I mean, Jesus said, in the world, you will have trouble. Trouble, 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 (laughs) right? In the world, you will have afflictions. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, the Bible says. So we, but then we're surprised. It's like there's so much. Well, how about this one? Do not be surprised, my dear friends, about the the fiery uh, trial that is to try you as though some strange thing were happening to you. And yet, come on, let's be honest. When the trial comes, we're like, what? Why is this happening? I don't believe, what did I do wrong? Why is God so mad at me? I must have, you know, this is like, read the Bible. It's there. We should expect trouble to come our way. I mean, isn't Jesus our model? Did he have some trouble? I mean, people wanted to like take him out. The guy suffered. He was a man of sorrows. And he ultimately was crucified, right? Flogged and beaten and crucified. But what a perfect uh, theological example for us that the cross and the suffering of Jesus, think of the good that came out of that, the fruit that came out of that. So we are following in the footsteps of Jesus. So we should expect, and Paul certainly did expect difficult things to happen. That's why he just wasn't phased by the big dramatic, take the belt and bind the, his feet and hands and everything. Like, oh, you, you know, you gotta, you're gonna, you're in danger, Paul. He's like, yeah, tell me something I don't know. I don't think he said it that way, but. All right, let's, let's get a little deeper. Now, um, verses 27 to 36, I'm, I'm just gonna kind of rip through this really fast and just kind of read it because it, it gives us, but I want you to pay attention to the public perception of Paul. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, Paul, in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and they laid their hands on, this isn't like laid hands on to pray for him, but they, they like grabbed him, all right, aggressively, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who was teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. 
For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city, think about this, the whole city was stirred up, and the people ran together. Chaos. They seized Paul. I mean, this is scary stuff right here. Dragged him out of the temple, which I think is so ironic. Here's a man filled with the Spirit, close to Jesus. He's like in the temple, right? Just trying to tell people about the gospel. And they're like dragging him out of the temple like he's some kind of terrible thing for the temple. Um, Very ironic that that would happen. But word came to the tribune and the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He had once took soldiers. Now the Romans are getting involved, centurions. They ran down to them. Again, chaos. Like there's like riot happening. The Jews are like flipping out, want to kill Paul, drag him out of them. You know, the authorities, the Roman uh, soldiers are coming in to try to. So they stopped beating Paul. Apparently they were just beating him, dragged him and were beating him. (laughs) I'm sure the folks back home are like, we told you not to go to Jerusalem. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers. Can you picture this whole scene? Because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Kind of sounds like Jesus, right? Crucify him. I mean, it's, that's a scary thing. It's, it's scary enough when, I remember in high school, there'd be certain people that just wanted to, I mean, this one dude, he just wanted to kill me. He just wanted to like crush my skull on the sidewalk because he was in love with my girlfriend. It's a whole thing, but... But I was like terrified of this guy. But this is like a whole nother level of just imagine all of society, mobs of people just wanting to to kill you. Now, the reality is that animosity toward the gospel has not changed in the last 2,000 years. In fact, there's been more violent persecution against Christians in recent decades than ever before in Christian history. In America, it's not common, right, yet at least, you know, to see physical violence against Christians. It's rare. Um, But public perception about the Christian faith and Christians is definitely under attack. Just as in Paul's day, people of influence spew out negative perceptions of Christianity, right? Right? Some things they say are true, but often they are out of proportion. They love to highlight the worst examples of Christians and hold that up for everybody to see and say, this is the Christian faith. They're deceptive in their smear campaign against Christians, and people of influence will really essentially slander the Christian community. And even though most Christians that we've probably all met are kind and gracious and hardworking and humble. They try to convince people that Christians are just terrible and they're a threat to human flourishing, that Christians are the problem, they're toxic, that Christians should be avoided. And in some cases, that Christians should be vehemently opposed. Sadly, even some Christians are being influenced by that and saying, oh, I don't know if I want to be one of these Christians. And even they're being drawn away into the delusion. 
Listen to me for a moment. Satan, who hates God and hates us as his people, he chooses men and women who are brilliant communicators. He chooses men and women who have colossal intellects and maybe are physically beautiful and winsome and maybe powerful and influential and, and maybe, uh, you know, have a lot of success in this present world. He uses those kinds of people as his prized instruments to deceive people. And that's what we're up against in this generation. And so the question that came to mind is like, what can cut through that? What does Paul do? Well, Paul's response in verse 39 to 40 says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And this is what he does. He stands on the steps. And I mean, think about this whole crazy crowd of people that want to kill him. This is what Paul wants to do. He wants to speak to his enemies here. They want to kill Paul. Now, it would be understandable, I think, if Paul was just felt hurt, right? His intentions were pure. He just wanted to bless people. If he just said, you know what? They don't want Jesus. I'm going to go somewhere else. Um, but Paul didn't do that. He didn't give up on his enemies. He prayed for them. And despite the danger, he begs and pleads with the, the tribune to, to go out. And I mean, he, anything could have happened. The, the, the crowd could have, could have just uh, rushed, rushed him and, and, and crushed him. But he just wanted to speak to the people. And I think the lesson here is that we shouldn't give up on people who show animosity against us or our message. The truth is that Satan holds people captive, right? This is scriptural. He blinds people. They often don't realize what they're doing. They aren't aware that they're being bamboozled uh, by demonic forces. Scripture says they're prisoners, right? I mean, these are just biblical ideas, that they're enslaved by sin and antichrist systems, of this present world. Paul knew that many of them had simply bought into the lie of the masses that they'd been given. And he wanted the opportunity to dispel the lie. So what does he share? I'm kind of running out of time, so I'm just going to paraphrase here. But essentially, he shares his story, doesn't he? Um, and I'll pick it up. You know, he says... Uh, at the heart of it, he says, I was on my way to Damascus and a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, that was Paul's former name, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, again, think he's speaking to hundreds, maybe thousands, who are very angry, his enemies. Think of what he's saying. He's saying, the Lord said, I am Jesus. He's speaking mostly to Jews here. 
massive crowd of people who are persecuting the message of Jesus. So if what Paul was saying was true, then these crowds were not just persecuting Paul, but they were persecuting Jesus Christ, the Lord God himself. And then he goes on with his testimony. Those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? What would you have me to do? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and I'll, and I'll tell you what you're going to do. And Paul continues to tell the story of how he uh, meets with his brother Ananias, and Ananias uh, heals his blindness. Paul was blind for three days, and scales fell from his eyes, and Paul could see. So Paul's just taking this opportunity before hundreds, maybe thousands of his enemies enraged, and he tells his story. I mean, he's standing before hecklers and taunters, and with great courage, he doesn't preach a sermon. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't preach at them. He shares the personal testimony of what Jesus did in his life. Verse 22 says, up to this word, they listened to him for a while. They listened to him. Then they raised their voices, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. It doesn't really have a great ending. <laughs> it's not like, and then uh, 5,000 people came to the Lord. You know, it's, it's, it seems like they were just too stirred up. It was that mob dynamic. And though it seems like the entire crowd rejected Paul, I don't think they did. I believe many of Paul's enemies, hearing him share his story, felt the conviction of the Spirit. I think their hearts were strangely warmed. They just didn't respond publicly because there were so many enraged people kind of dominating the scene. And what I want to say here is it's very hard to argue with the personal testimony of a man or woman who is risking their life to get through to a people who want him dead. This kind of demonstration of love affects people. And my encouragement to us in our interactions with people around us who don't know Christ and may even show animosity at times against our message is to, as we always say, be a good listener. Be a good listener. Find ways to serve. Don't just like get all over people and start preaching to them. You know, find ways to be a blessing. But listen, when you have opportunity, share your story. Share the thing that God has done in your life that just can't be explained. Right, And if you've been a Christian for a while, you probably have many stories. Don't embellish, ever. You don't need to do that. Uh, just tell people plainly and honestly what happened in your life. In other words, like, how did you come to know Jesus? What has God done in your life that only God could have done? What are the evidences of the work of God in your life? You know, share those things with people. Because people will be forced to either think you are crazy or to realize you're telling the truth. And I would add this, be an honest person through and through. You know, amongst your families, especially amongst the people you're with often, right? If you work 40, 50 hours a week on, on, a, on a job, 
or if you're with on a college campus, you're with other students, be honest about everything you say, everything you do. Have a reputation of honesty because then when you get to the point of sharing your story, it'll be credible because it's backed by a life of honesty. Does that make sense? It's so important. If you're kind of a person that fibs and fabricates and kind of, you know, just sort of, you know, we don't maybe lie right out. Maybe we do, but, you know, we just kind of spin things to, you know, we're kind of one of those people. They're kind of deceitful. They don't really give you the straight answer about, the, if we're that kind of, and then we get the opportunity to share our story, we're not, we're not going to be taken seriously. They're just going to think we're, you know, we're, no, here we go again, fabricating, embellishing. Be honest about everything and look for opportunities to tell your story. The testimony of an honest soul affects people. Amen. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Father, give us opportunities. Give us courage to share our stories, the things that you have done in our lives, the, just the way you've cleansed us, the way you've ripped our pride out and put humility in, the, the way you've uh, broken the power of idols in our lives, just the answered prayers that we've had, the, the times when we didn't know what was going to happen and you just came through with amazing provision or breakthrough in different ways. Just, to, just all the, the stories that we've accumulated over the years. Or give us courage and give us opportunities to share those things with people around us that need to be, who need to be reconciled to God. Lord, let our stories be told. I think about, um, I think about uh, Shana, who is putting together, you know, kind of highlighting different people in the Wren community and doing these short films. Um, the next one that's going to be launched is David Karambizi that, that'll be launched soon. And Lord, just how, you know, the last one was Allie um, and, and her story and how these stories are just kind of going out. We're, we're sending them out. We're putting them out in public. We're sending them out into the, the, the social media sphere, you know, amongst probably a lot of people that have animosity toward the Christian faith. But we pray that these stories would change people and demonstrate to people that God, the Lord Jesus, is good and true and beautiful. And we pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for listening this morning.